0: Hey, this is a Hakawadi production. I'm really excited about today's guest. He's the founder and president of the Arab American Institute, a Washington, D.C. based organization which serves as the political and policy research arm of the Arab American community in the U.S. He's written books, he has a weekly column that's published in 12 countries, he's had his own TV show. He's one of the biggest, most powerful champions for Arab voices the West has ever had, in my opinion and I'm so happy to have him on. He's full of wisdom, which I think is something we really need these days. Please welcome to the show, Dr. James Zogby. Dr. Zogby, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me on the show.
0: So exciting times in the U.S. Joe Biden has claimed victory, but it seems like Donald Trump is in no hurry to pass the ball. What are your thoughts on all of this?
1: Well, I don't know if I'd use the word exciting as much as it is um, nerve wracking. The issue is uh, one that we could have and should have foreseen. I've actually been writing about this for a while. The fact is that Donald Trump has been telegraphing his intent to challenge uh, the legitimacy of the election and the Republican party has been making plans to contest it in multiple states through a variety of means you know the number one uh, lawsuits number two using state legislatures and number three even going so far as to attempt to suborn electors to vote against the candidate that they are supposed to vote for as per constitutional tradition so it, it look donald trump is incapable of acknowledging that he is second best at anything. He has the biggest hands. He has the largest crowds, uh, the highest TV ratings, the tallest building in Manhattan, et cetera, et cetera. He can't admit defeat. I think it's a psychological problem. And I think it's playing out now in a a very difficult way. Because what's happened is not just the drama of an individual who can't accept the fact that he lost. It's causing... Millions of people to question the legitimacy of the entire electoral process. And that is very disturbing. It's disturbing because it, it, it the, what it holds for the future um, is a, a, a significant part of the American public questioning the legitimacy of our elections.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely worrisome. We're all like on the edge of our seats and no one really knows which way it's gonna go and what will the result will be. Uh, but when and if Biden does take over and the Democrats take control, what should we expect here in the Middle East based on what you've been uh, seeing? We know that Biden's already been talking about renewing talks with Iran. Are we in for any major policy changes in this region, you think?
1: Let, let me just say one thing about the initial part of the question. I think there's there's there is no doubt in my mind that Joe Biden will be the President of the United States. It's the drama that will unfold between now and then, uh, the damage it will do. And several things are clear, and that is that Trump will go, but his Trumpism will remain. We will stay in a what I could call a hyper partisan environment in which Republicans play by the rule of, uh, that, that in Lebanon, right, the lesson was learned, there's no victor, no vanquished. Uh, Republicans haven't figured that one out. Uh, they they are carnivores and they want to eat, the, devour their opponents. Uh, they lost this one, but they will not stop. Uh, in an effort to destroy Joe Biden's presidency um, by, by by several means. Uh, just as they worked on Obama with the Tea Party and with the birther movement and with Islamophobia to build their movement, they'll, they'll continue those same tactics. It, this is very disturbing. What what will Joe Biden do? In part, is tempered by the, the, the fact that he will face a tremendous opposition in Congress with no matter what he does. So yeah, he wants to reenter the uh, the Iran deal, but this is a Joe Biden and a, a, a team around him that has learned lessons. And my conversations with them throughout the, the campaign and the fact that I've known them for some of them for years, um, these are folks who, who were here during the Obama administration. Um, they saw how some of these, Middle East policies worked, didn't work. Uh, they promise in conversations we've had um, to have learned lessons, to have learned lessons about Syria, to have learned lessons about Iran, to have learned lessons about Israel-Palestine. What they will be able to do is now dependent on countries in the region. You can't just say uh, we're going to uh, you know, uh, make peace between Israel and Palestine when you have a an emboldened Netanyahu government that is clearly not gonna roll over and play dead when you tell them that you want them to do X, Y, or Z. You have a dysfunctional Palestinian leadership that is, I think, incapable. They have no vision or strategy. You have a Syria in which it's become a playground for multiple regional actors. The U.S. has lost its ability to be in the driver's seat. And since the Iraq war, the the leadership role that the united states played prior to that from the end of the cold war until the the turn of this century is gone i mean iran turkey israel saudi arabia uae russia china have become uh, fixtures in a multipolar world and the us it has to navigate its way through that minefield and so what will happen in a biden administration They'll, i think with regard to Israel-Palestine, Netanyahu doesn't get a free ride anymore. Will they attempt to punish him? No, because they have limited leverage to do so, but he will not get the kind of verbal support and backup that he got from Donald Trump. And that will create a certain vulnerability on his part. Um, The Palestinians will get uh, support. The UNRWA aid will be restored. NGOs uh, will get development funds for the West Bank and Gaza. There'll be projects started. PLO office in Washington, the East East Jerusalem Consulate will be reopened. But there are limits to how far that they can go. And with Iran, uh, there'll be an effort to re-engage not just Iran, but the region and Europe in the Iran nuclear deal. And what will that mean? It will mean that there's no going back to status quo ante. Uh, Iran has demonstrated negative behaviors before the deal and since the deal. There'll be an effort to to renegotiate the deal, not just re-enter it as it was. Iran wouldn't accept that anyway. But the issue of Iran's role in the region will come into question, as well as its ballistic missile program. So th- there'll be an effort to re-engage, but on different terms.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking about you know, the, the relationship between uh, the Democrats. A long, it's a long history of a relationship, obviously, between the parties and Israel. Let's listen to this clip from 1986 of Joe Biden and what he said about Israel.
1: If we look at the Middle East, I think it's about time we stop those of us who support, as most of us do, Israel and this body, for apologizing for our support for Israel. There's no apology to be made, none. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. The United States would have to go out and invent an Israel.
0: So is this the case? Does does the U.S. Have you heard this clip before, by the way?
1: Uh, Of course, of course. And my response to it is you didn't have to because Britain already invented it. But that's another story.
0: True that. True that.
1: Yeah. So
0: is this the case? Does the U.S. really need an Israel in this day and age, especially now that they're brokering all these uh, peace deals between Israel and the Arab countries? They're kind of building new bridges. Could a country like um, Saudi Arabia, for instance, eventually replace Israel as the U.S.'s best and most strategic ally, especially given how quickly the country is transforming?
1: Look, from my perspective, there's an entire Rethinking of American foreign policy that needs to take place. But given where we are, I frankly don't see that Israel plays any meaningful role in protecting U.S. interests anywhere. It doesn't. It's more of a liability than an asset. And the relationship with Israel is not based on strategy, it's based on politics. It's a function of domestic politics that has enabled Israel to become what it is, which is a regional bully, an emboldened acquisitive occupier that seeks more land and seeks to displace more Palestinians, and one of the great arms merchants in the world. I mean, using US technology and US financial assistance to build an arms trade, where sometimes we cut some countries off and Israel picks them up as clients. That's been going on since the 70s. We've neither done ourselves any favors, nor have we done Israel favors emboldening Israel to play the role that it plays will ultimately, I think, earn it pariah status in many parts of the world as the enabler of you know, very right-wing regimes. Um, and from the time it was funding, uh, I mean, selling arms to South Africa during the apartheid period, Central American states after the US would cut them off for human rights violations, uh, to where they are today, you know, in, involved in, in, in conflicts around the world by selling arms to one side or another. They've become a mini United States. It's not that we need them. It's that politics in Washington dictate that we support them and we enable them and empower them to pursue the path that they're on. I think the politics in Washington is changing and not just the, the, the squad, quote unquote, has doubled its size. But if you look at polling, in the Democratic Party, significant groups are questioning not the existence of Israel, but questioning Israeli policies and the U.S. policy towards Israel. Almost three-quarters of Democrats have said that Israel should have its aid cut because of its human rights violations. What the supporters of Israel show is the first line, which always says... uh, Is your view of Israel favorable or unfavorable? Do you support Israel? And 60% of Americans will say they support Israel. But you ask the bottom questions going down about Israeli policy, about settlement building, about human rights violations of Palestinians, about bombing in Gaza, et cetera, you get significant negative numbers. And so what you're seeing in Congress right now is a debate among members of Congress about how do we put controls on what Israel does? Should we be funding these behaviors? Is this, is this good for us? Is it good for Israel? And I think that debate's gonna continue. Joe Biden can say, I'm gonna restore the bipartisan support of Israel. That, you know, the, the, you know that, that ship has sailed. There is no longer bipartisan support. There's bipartisan support among congressional leaders, but among the rank and file of Democrats, there's tremendous opposition to what israel is doing and that's not going to change it's only going to grow over time
0: yeah well the devil is in the details as they say um but to go back to um you know the talks with iran do you think the us can be friends with both Iran and the GCC countries and Saudi Arabia uh, at the same time? Because uh, Donald Trump seems, and his administration, of course, it's not him per se. Um, you know, we know there's a lot of other people who are uh, probably feel even more passionately uh, around him about the politics that they're playing with. But do you think that, that the U.S. can be friends with both countries at the same time, or do they really need to pick sides uh, which is it seems to be the, the tactic that they've been using for the last three years.
1: A superpower doesn't, doesn't have to have friends. A superpower has to figure out what its interests are and how to pursue policies that advance them. We don't need to be a friend of Saudi Arabia. We don't need to be a friend of Iran. But what we need to do is figure out how to play a meaningful role in creating stability, peace, and order in the Gulf region, and broadly speaking, in the rest of the Middle East. And as I've looked at it, there are way too many conflicts in the, in the region right now, where Iran's on one side, and Saudi Arabia and, and its allies are on the other side. And then there's the Turkey and Qatar axis. Uh, and then there's the role of Russia Uh, Etc. What you've got, in other words, is multiple conflicts involving multiple players mixed up in different combinations on, on different sides. What the region needs is not for the U.S. to pick a side, nor does it need for the U.S. to be friends with everybody. That's contentless and hollow. What it needs is for the U.S. to figure out with other international players how to create regional security. And frankly, I think that the OSC Uh, E-model in Europe is basically the model that, that one needs to look to in the Middle East, which is how do you create a regional compact where the countries that I've mentioned are sitting around a table working out problems rather than fighting them through surrogates on battlefields? I think it can be done. It certainly stabilized Europe, East and West, for a half a century until the fall of the Soviet Union and then the emergence of of independent uh, free states in, in, uh, in Eastern and Central Europe, that can happen in the Middle East as well. I think there will be an evolving situation in Saudi Arabia. I think there will be an evolving situation in Iran. I think that there will be trade across the Gulf in the future between a, a, an increasingly prosperous uh, Saudi Arabia and an increasingly prosperous Iran. They have more to gain by working with each other than against each other. They don't need to be involved. Iran doesn't need to uh, to, to be a threatening uh, force uh, and uh, in, in Iraq, in Syria, using surrogates like Hezbollah in Lebanon or uh, the, the Houthi movement in, in Yemen. But they do it because they feel insecure. The Saudis feel insecure. And so they go at each other. Where's the adult supervision? Where's the, where's the effort to bring people to the table? to say, let's sort this out and solve this conflict. That is what the w- role of the UN should be. Um, it, it's not, it's dysfunctional. But I think that the US together with European uh, countries could convene uh, a regional security framework compact for the, the, the Gulf region to start and then attempt to expand it throughout the Middle East. That would make sense to me. It's not friendship uh, as much as it's uh, it's finding a way to... to promote security uh, and confidence so that countries can be at peace and and trade and, instead of, um, you know, seeking to undermine each other.
0: Well, I think we all know that everyone wants to trade, but... Um after you know decades of of having this role of kind of leading a, a sense of security for the region, it seems like the, the the Trump administration has kind of taken a step back from that and kind of uh, doesn't want to be involved in all the conflicts. They kind of want things to be uh, to step away from that role. So it will be interesting to see how Biden uh, steps back into that role and if he does. Um, but I, he- I
1: think that what what the Biden folks are saying is that. They want to uh, to do more to expand security relationships in the region. That is to say, they do. There, there are some in that circle who want to to proceed toward an OSCE framework. But in the meantime, they want to talk to Iran not just about nuclear, but about its regional engagement. And they want to expand the Iran deal to include Israel and the Gulf, the Arab Gulf states, in that framework. It should be a, a P five plus Four or five. It should. It should have everybody sitting at the table. That's the beginning of the security framework I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, but you've been watching the Arab world for a while now. You started out in the late '70s when you founded the Palestine Human Rights Campaign. Correct me if I'm wrong.
1: No, you're right.
0: That's correct. Okay, good. Um, the Wikipedia entry is correct. That's good to know. So, what are your thoughts on the peace deals that the Trump administration, you know, recently brokered with uh, the UAE, Bahrain, and Sudan, and where does this leave Palestine?
1: Uh, look, I, I, I've I wrote an article recently about how if you listen to rhetoric in Israel and rhetoric among the Palestinians, both were saying the same thing, but for different reasons. The Israelis were saying this is the wave that's going to bury the Palestinian issue and make peace with between Israel and the Arab countries. And the Palestinians were saying uh, they've buried the Palestinian issue. They've obliterated our cause. Neither one is right. As long as the majority of the people between the, the river and the sea are Arab, the Palestinian issue cannot go away. As long as you have millions of refugees longing to return to their homes and property, and have their rights recognized—the legitimate property rights recognized. The Palestinian issue is not going to go away. Oppression is not sustainable, and so you know the issue is the Palestinian cause will, you know, will continue to be a, a, a major question in the region that will confront not just Palestinians but clearly confront Israelis. Uh, it is not sustainable for them, and I think that, as I've as I've as I've said for a number of years now, that the the ship has sailed on a two-state solution. I don't know where it would be and how you would get there. Israel dug a hole that is very deep; they can't get out of it, and they're not going to evacuate hundreds of thousands of settlers and create the f- space for Palestinians to have a viable state, et cetera. So you know what we're, what we're left with is a one state solution and a struggle for human rights and for, for dignity of all people who live between the river and the sea. Israelis say, oh no, that's the end of the world. And I say, guess what guys, you, you're the ones who laid this, uh, the foundation for this. You get a choice, you're not willing to do the one, this is what you got. So the Palestinian cause doesn't go away. What I'd like to see is Arab states use their leverage to move Israel forward. And it may very well be that the UAE can use the leverage of this deal to say to the Israelis, better treatment is important, less violation of rights, don't don't violate rights, don't do demolitions. You undercut our deal with you uh, if you expand settlements. They haven't done that. But I think at some point, the pressure is going to be there for them to do that They become an additional player sitting at the table. Part of the problem here is the Palestinian leadership. Look, this has been a cause of mine since I first went to Lebanon in 71 and stayed in refugee camps. I was in Iowa doing my dissertation research and and got to know Palestinians, interviewing them in Lebanon, in Jordan, and then uh, in uh, in Israel and the West Bank for, for my dissertation. I love the steadfastness, the dignity with which individual Palestinians maintain their right. But the Palestinian leadership uh, has been found wanting. Um, There is no vision and there's no strategy either. I used to fault them years ago for having tactics and an end game, but no way to connect the tactics to the end game. Now they don't have either. They don't have tactics, they don't have strategy, and they don't have an end game. I mean, I know the vision that I fell in love with when I saw the paintings of Ismail Shamut or heard the poetry of Mahmoud Darwish or listened to Feirouz or, or read the novels of Hassan Kandafani. I don't see where that is anymore. You know, instead what we have is a is a decayed leadership that is interested more in its own survival than in promoting a, a visionary cause. And so in the polling that I do around the, the Middle East, what I find is that what Arabs are telling us is enough. They they don't see, and this is what we found in our 2019 poll when we said, you know, do you think some Arab states will seek normalization with Israel? And 80% in most of the countries said yes. And then we said, would that be desirable? And between 50 and 70% in most of the countries also said yes. And when we then, I was so troubled by it, I repolled, came up with the same numbers. And so I then did open-ended questions to say, why would you say that? And what they told me was, this isn't going anywhere. Uh, Maybe if we made peace, uh, maybe if there was normalization, we'd have some leverage to help Palestinians get their rights. Maybe we'd stabilize the situation and Palestinians would find more freedom. There was always the Palestinian dimension to it, but there was a sense that this has run its course. It's not going anywhere. Something new has to happen. Is this the right path? I'm not sure. But what I do know is that we were on no path at all, and nothing was happening, and something, you know, n- needed to change. And uh, uh, I'm not sure this is the right right one. But what I do know is that continuing to complain about international legitimacy that nobody cares about, or international law that nobody even knows what it means, or you know whatever, wasn't getting anywhere. Uh, and the two-state solution mantra has become what I call the two-state absolution. It's, it, 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 you know, you say, oh, I support a two-state solution, and therefore I don't have to do anything, uh, which is what Europe has been doing now for decades, and which is what American politicians have been doing for decades. The reality is there's a struggle for human rights, human dignity, equality, and an end to suffering of people who don't deserve to live under the brutal regime that they're forced to live under, uh, under, the, under Israeli rule and to constantly have to be looking out over their shoulder to see if soldiers are gonna invade one more time or settlers are gonna demolish their orchards. That's where our focus ought to be. And, um, and whether Biden does anything or not, I know that that's where the movement in the Democratic Party is in, uh, among progressives in particular, uh, is to move in that direction.
0: Yeah, it's so true, because that's, at the end of the day, the fundamental issue. We're talking about human beings, and we're all in this together, and it's just simply uh, unacceptable that this go on the way it has. But um, let's talk about what's happening. Well, first of all, I just want to say you made excellent uh, points about the, the, the peace deals. Um, it'll be interesting to see not only to have these other players at the table, but also to see once companies start, you know, working in each other's countries, that's when you have, you know, when those things come, when the, that economic pressure comes, if a company wants to do something in Israel and they say, well, we're not going to do this deal, as you said, not just on the country level, but in, in the, you know, business uh, communities, there'll be some pressure there. So it's an interesting uh thing to think about and also kind of makes you think about capitalism and, and the things that work about capitalism and the things that don't. But let's talk about what's happening in the U.S. Racism is bubbling to the surface right now in the U.S. Blacks are on the front lines of this issue. But what about Arabs? Um, Arabs kind of fell under the gun after 9-11. We heard a lot about it and I know that you've been the target of attacks uh, over time. You've even had uh, people sent to jail for, uh, you know, or that were sent, in, you didn't have them sent to jail, obviously, the justice system care <laughs> of them, I imagine, although I'm sure you have a lot of good friends uh, there in D.C. But how's the situation now, in your opinion, when it comes to the racial uh, tensions between uh, Arabs and Americans?
1: It certainly is much better than it was back when I first started, back in the 70s, uh, when there really wasn't a problem. And I, I, I should clarify this. I've been doing a lot of writing about this, too, in, in my weekly column, which I I think Lebanon is one of the few countries where the article doesn't appear, (laughs) Um, much to my dismay. But um, I've been writing about it because we've seen this issue evolve over time. When I started back in the 70s, the discrimination and exclusion that we faced was, one, Hollywood. There was defamation in media. But it didn't translate so much down into the culture there wasn't a situation where the Arab doctor, people would say, I don't want to go to you. You're an Arab. Uh, that never happened. Uh, we weren't in the same situation ever as, as blacks, for example. There wasn't racism per se. What there was was, and, and this some people wax indignant when I say this, but there was pressure from the Jewish community. They didn't accept the legitimacy of our organizations. They feared us, and they saw us. Uh, especially after the 67 war through the prism of the conflict. So, you know, I, I would talk about the the stare, you know, the, the Arab businessman would go to the bank and sit down with uh, somebody and they say, oh, that's an interesting name. Where are you from? And he'd say, I'm Palestinian. And he'd get the look. And the look was, I'm Jewish, you're Palestinian. And there would either be a kind of a, an excessive um, oh, that's so interesting. Tell me about it. You know, like wanting to of uh, sort of a faux fraternity um, a- effort at creating a faux fraternity or there'd be a distance. We weren't treated as regular people in that context. We were seen as the other side of the conflict. And that's how I'd get introduced when I do a news show. Uh, they'd say, um, and now to present the other side, I used to think of myself as I'm the other side, whatever that is. And there was exclusion. There were politicians who gave money back uh, and all in every instance, it was because they were afraid of alienating the Jewish community. Well, we broke down those barriers and that doesn't exist anymore. It started actually uh, during the Clinton years, uh, the acceptance, the work we had done with Jesse Jackson paved the ground for that. and, uh, And clearly, as we moved into the Obama World, and then in, in in the 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 Bernie Sanders uh, campaign, and now with Joe Biden. Look, Joe Biden issued a five page uh, platform for Arab Americans on the website, printed in English and Arabic. No presidential candidate ever did that. No presidential candidate had a special platform for Arab Americans and addressed all of the issues domestic and foreign in the way that this campaign did. That's significant and so we've we've made inroads and and I think we've we've solved problems. We don't have Arab Americans shunned or excluded uh, as we were back in the 70s when I'd you know bring the Palestine human rights campaign to try to join the coalition for a new foreign and military policy and win the vote to be admitted. But then had two Jewish groups say, if you let them in, we'll pull out. And, uh, and the group then came back to us and said, it's really better if you withdraw your application because we don't want to alienate them. I mean, that was the kind of stuff that used to happen. It doesn't happen anymore. Uh, what has happened is, it, is, is that to some extent, there is a, a transferal from the Arab American to the Muslim. And that is not on the Democratic side. It's on the Republican side. So whereas Democrats and Republicans both shunned Arabs, both don't shun Arabs, but now the Republican side does this with with Muslims. They'll have their pet Muslims, you know, that they'll trot around and say, this is our guy. But they have used bigotry toward Islam and Muslims as a a campaign tool. And that's only been going on since 2010. It actually didn't begin in a serious way after... after 9-11, uh, the first time it got used politically was in 2010. The anti-Arab stuff had been being used by Republicans against Democrats going back to, oh God, in the 70s. I remember candidates, you know, fundraiser in the Arab community for a candidate and the the Republican opponent saying he took money from from the Arabs and they would actually go get the 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 you know, the list of who the donors were. And in some cases it was members of his own family. It was a Lebanese guy and his own family had given him a lot of money. And they pulled out all the names and said, look at all the the, the Arabs who are supporting him. Uh, what's his game? What what is he an American or not? And that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. Thank goodness it doesn't happen anymore. But the sort of the image of the threat of Muslims uh, does happen, but it only happens now used on the republican side it's a it's a tool they use in in different ways uh both the violence terrorism but also the subverting of american culture not unlike the way the french you know le pen uses it to the muslims are going to take over uh, america and change our culture uh newt gingrich was one of the main architects back in 2010 and and there are some who still use it now
0: yeah, well, this uh, seems to be a real problem in Europe now, for sure. I think uh, 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 it's interesting to see how, how it's evolved in the U.S. And I'm sure that the work you do has something to do with it, uh, at least to some degree. But why is this so important to you? Why do you do what you do? It's a big question, I know, but it's important.
1: couple reasons. One is uh, I started in politics uh, uh, on the left with anti-war activity and civil rights. When I became aware of the Palestinian issue, it was actually my Irish wife <laughs> who challenged me, why aren't you doing something about this issue? Um, I got involved in it, and all of a sudden, I found you know the the chill. It was like I'd be at a, a student organizing meeting uh, against the war, and somebody would say, why, why is the Arab guy here? Why are you letting the Arab guy speak? And it was coming from Jewish students who were, again, it was this was the post-sixty-seven war, and I was the threat, even though I hadn't done anything on Palestinian stuff or wasn't there to do Palestinian stuff. I was there to speak against the war in Vietnam. They made it an issue that I was the Arab guy. I got my first death threat in nineteen seventy from the from the JDL, um, and they they uh, tried to storm my classroom, uh, and thank God there were black students in my classroom who. Gathered and and literally scared these little uh, little shits uh, you know out of the building. Uh, they never came back again. But you know th- this is this is a problem that we've we, we had to deal with. And so yeah, when I started the PHRC, the Palestine Human Rights Campaign, I wanted to defend Palestinian rights. I also wanted to build a coalition to protect us. So we had every civil rights leader join. Uh, we had folk singers like Pete Seeger and Joan Baez, and we had all the anti-war leaders, uh, and we had church leaders from different uh, Christian denominations, and it was important. And then, you know, I started the Anti-Discrimination Committee because of the, the defamation in the media, uh, and that was important to to make sure that our image in America was protected. And then in 84, I was Jesse Jackson's deputy campaign manager, and I saw for the first time, Arab Americans respected in a national political campaign. And I got to deliver one of the nominating speeches at the Democratic Convention for him. Um, I, I never forget, I started saying, I said, I'm the son of an illegal immigrant from Lebanon going to nominate for president, the great grandson of a slave. Where else but in America could this happen? And it was just such a, a great feeling to be able to, to do that as a proud person of Arab descent. Um, yeah. I then decided that we would try to do that political empowerment work among the community. So we started the Institute the next year and we looked, I got the federal registry and I got all the state and local government registries, and we would go through them looking for Arabic names and we'd call them up and say, are you of Arabic descent? We want to help you. And we would send money to their campaigns and build a network of them. It was to empower our community to make sure we were never again excluded, to get us a seat at the table, to get our, our our culture and heritage respected, because when you have political power, people will respect you. When you don't have political power, people will defame you. And then to get our issues heard so that we could advocate for Palestine and for Lebanon, et cetera, in the center of power, uh, which you can only do if you have gained some political influence. So those were the that was the history, sorry for the length of it, but also that was the that those were the reasons why to make the community able to speak for, defend, define itself and 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 to to advocate for itself.
0: Well, I'm not of Arab descent, but I want to thank you for what you do cuz I I really admire people who do things for equality and justice regardless of race or um, you know, uh, nationality and religion. So thank you so much. We're really running out of time. I wish we could talk longer. So is there anything you wanted to add?
1: Well, that people could, if they want to receive my weekly column, I'd love to get them on the list. It's They can write me at jzogby at aaiusa.org, or they can follow me on Twitter, which is uh, my Twitter address is jjz. 1600 uh, i'd love to have more folks follow and and read my column
0: duly noted thanks thank you so much for joining us it's been such an honor having you on the podcast and i look thank forward you. to to following your work uh in in the days and years ahead thank you Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you have any comments on this episode or the podcast in general, feel free to share those comments with us. You can find me on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and I always respond to comments and messages. See you next time.